Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this virtual Commonwealth Club program. My name is Shira Frankel, and I report on cybersecurity for The New York Times. I'll be moderating today's program. This program is part of the Commonwealth Club's virtual series. We'd like to thank our members, donors, and supporters for making this and all our other programs possible. We are grateful for their support and hope others will follow their example to support the club during these uncertain times. In the midst of a pandemic, social media and the internet at large has offered a physically distant form of connection for many. And more people than ever are logging on, updating their status, and sharing posts and photos. But how is this rapid shift in media consumption and in the information and disinformation that we share affecting democracy during an election year? Joining me today to discuss this is Alex Stamos, director of the Stanford Internet Observatory and former chief security officer at Facebook. Alex is an industry expert and business leader with decades of experience in cybersecurity. While at Facebook, he oversaw the company's response to Russian meddling in the 2016 elections and the fallout that happened post-election. We'll be discussing a lot in the next hour, and I want to ask Alex your questions, too. If you're watching along with us, please put your questions in the text chat on YouTube or the comments on Facebook, and we'll be getting to them later in the program. Thank you, Alex, for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Shira. Uh, to get us started, let's talk about the, um, let's start with the election integrity partnership that you just announced. I think yeah. it's a really interesting example of how this time around various groups have come together and are trying to work together in a unique way to prevent what happened in 2016 from happening again. Do you want to talk us through a little bit about how that partnership came together and what you hope to achieve? So the partnership uh, is between four organizations that have done a lot of work on online disinformation in the past. So it's our group, the Stanford Internet Observatory the University of Washington Center for Informed Public, Graphica, which is a private company that builds social media analytics tools, um, and a, a part of the Atlantic Council in D.C. called DFR Lab. So all four of these organizations are kind of famous for publishing research on online disinformation, activity by foreign actors, election security, and the like. And the goal of the partnership is to kind of cut the corner on what we saw what was going to happen in 2020, which is that six weeks, eight weeks, several months after the election, these four groups are going to start publishing papers about the disinformation we saw happening uh, and provide you know, a view way too late into the kind of disinformation um, that was going on. And so our goal is to operationalize our work to, so we can have mitigating impacts in the middle of the election season during election day, and then I think critically this year for the handful of days after the election. And then we will still do our academic research. We'll still be able to publish our findings. But hopefully when we do so, we can say that we were able to find and help mitigate the impact before it ever happened. Right. I remember that well in the 2016 elections. A lot of us did not know what the word disinformation was, what yes. it referred to. Um, I think Facebook as well didn't really have clear-cut policies or any of the tech companies about what disinformation was. And here we are four years later, and there are regular reports being published right. about coordinated takedowns on these companies. What do you think makes this year different, this election year different, um, in terms of both how the tech companies are prepared and how experts such as yourself are able to, in real time, study how disinformation is moving? Yeah, I mean, the whole ecosystem is very different, right? And, and when we look at 2016, there is a whole kind of ecosystem failure of all of us paying attention to the wrong things. So at the tech companies, uh, we were paying attention to very traditional hacking, right? At Facebook, we had a threat intelligence team, mostly staffed for people who used to work for Western intelligence agencies. Uh, and they had this very traditional view of what cybersecurity was. Um, we were looking for people hacking accounts, sending malware, uh, trying to break in to steal information, uh, creating fake accounts to insert themselves uh, into private groups. And that focus was reasonable, and there was that kind of activity. But there wasn't anybody in the companies who were thinking about disinformation as a first-order phenomenon on its own. The idea that people would create and push organized disinformation to affect the election without that kind of traditional hacking. And so, you know, that was a failure there. And the government, people weren't really paying attention, right? So you, you had the same thing where there were a number of government agencies with whom we were working pretty closely who were paying attention to the offensive actors like APT28, the GRU and like, but not to the disinformation actors. In the media, you know, there was discussion of the hacking of the DNC and the like, but there was much less, you know, discussion. There's there's a famous New York Times article about the Internet Research Agency by Adrian Chen. But other than that, there had there's not a lot of people looking at it. Now it's totally different, right? It's a, there's folks in the media like you who it's a huge part of your beat, right? A number of outlets have disinformation beats. There are academic research groups like ours that are paying attention. And inside the companies, there are now policies and groups that are dedicated for it. So that's great. That's all wonderful. 
challenge for 2020 is like those are responses to what happened in 2016, which is like organized groups working for the Russian government or Russian aligned actors like oligarchs with a plan and central coordination and creating fake accounts altogether, which I don't think is what we're going to see in 2020. And so I think, you know, it's great that all these things have happened and we are better prepared in some ways, but we are also fighting the last war. And I think all of the people who are involved know that. The question is, is we're all just trying to figure out what the next war is. Well, some would say the next war is already here, which is that Americans are spreading disinformation to other Americans. We have political leaders in this country who are spreading disinformation and very much being the host and source for a lot of the worst disinformation. And what we're seeing, at least right now, is a lot of sort of waffling on the parts of the tech companies about what to do, how to take down um, a piece of false information when it is said by someone, you know, standing up for a major political party. Do you think that your organization, your partnership will be consulting with Facebook and other companies about this? Have they reached out to you guys? And what sort of guidance, I guess, can you offer them? So we have we have reached out and we have had two-way conversations with all the major platforms, right? So we've had really good conversations with Facebook, Twitter, Google, Reddit. We've talked to TikTok. That's actually been very productive. Uh, some of the smaller groups, Discord, you know, there's, there's a bunch of companies that didn't really exist or they were much smaller in 2016 and are now our real players. So that's been good. I think, you know, our goal with that is that if we're able to find disinformation, that we'll be able to report it quickly and then collaborate with them on taking it down. And there's a good precedent for this, which all four of these organizations have worked on research projects side by side with tech platforms. One of the interesting things that we found, though, is that there is, there's a lack of alignment between the companies and a lack of alignment between the companies and ourselves of what we actually count as election-related disinformation. And to be clear, for this partnership, we're really just focused on election-related disinformation. So not general propaganda, one of the candidates saying the other candidate's a bad person or making up a lie about them, but somebody saying, you know, participation, giving information that makes it difficult for somebody to participate, like giving them incorrect information about how to request a ballot, telling them that the election's been moved, information that might discourage somebody from voting, such as, uh, you know, there are riots outside the polling places, don't go vote, it's dangerous. Information that encourages people to commit fraud themselves. And then especially disinformation around whether or not the election was the election integrity itself, which is, turns out to be the hardest category. Right. I want to ask you a lot more about that last yeah. category. So just to run through it for people who might not know the ins and outs, at the moment, we've got companies like Twitter and YouTube who say that they will take down misinformation, including about polling places or whatnot, irregardless of who's posting it. So if anyone, you or me or the president, were to say that um, the postal system is inept and that ballots could get lost and that people shouldn't bother voting because ballots won't be counted. That's a piece of information they feel that they will take down, whether or not the president says it or, as I said, an average citizen. Facebook, on the other hand, has put itself in a tricky situation because they've said that the president is somewhat of a protected category. And correct me if I'm wrong here, but as I understand, Facebook's position is that if President Trump were to share something, they label it and they direct you to their voter center, but they don't necessarily tell you it's wrong or that the president is telling you something false by telling you that your ballot will not be counted. Right. Do you think that policy is going to hurt Facebook in the long run? And do you think it's confusing for people seeing these posts from President Trump? So it's even more complicated than that. Uh, so to, to throw out, uh, we just wrote a blog post about this. It's at eipartnership.net. Uh, if people want to read about it, we did a comparison of all the major platforms of what their policies are. And from our perspective, none of the companies actually have sufficient policies at this point. We rated them as not whether we agree with their they or not, but whether they actually have the policies and whether they're sufficient to understand and to predict what steps they're going to take. And for us, we identified kind of three levels of that kind of disinformation. One would be, let's say, the president saying the election's being stolen. That is a non-falsifiable statement, right? So that is a kind of a political argument and an argument that honestly both sides are making right now, right? Like with the USPS things that are going on, everybody feels like the other side is trying to steal the election. Then you can have a statement that the election is being stolen because of X, right? So what President Trump would say, because mail-in voting causes lots of fraud, which is not true, for which there's no evidence. On the other side, you're hearing, because the USPS is doing X or Y or Z. And then the third would be even more specificity of the election is being stolen, and here is evidence. And we've seen this in the past where people have uh, created fake documents, they've repurposed videos or repurposed photos from actual ballot stuffing in you know, Russia in 2012 and the like, um, and then repurpose and say, this is what's going on in Miami, this is what's going on in Detroit. You can look, we have this big complicated grid. None of the companies are actually specific about what they're going to do. But you're right, like Facebook specifically has a newsworthiness exemption for the president that I think is going to get them in trouble. 
personally, I think that's a fine thing around the general. I, if you know, if a candidate for the election says, "I think the election is being stolen," and they're making a general statement, I don't think that's something a trillion dollar company should censor. But if they're going to inject a specific fact and it's a falsifiable fact, then that becomes problematic. Now, I, I think we can disagree on what you do with it. I, I do think the labeling and reducing the spread is actually a better move. There's some evidence to show that in some of these situations where a platform takes something completely down, it greatly increases the number of other people who then push it out. And then it creates the difficulty of trying to label all that stuff, right? Like the pandemic videos and such. And so allowing it to be up and then labeling it with this is not true and then reducing its spread, turning off what we call product affordances, like reshares and such, I think is a smarter move. But it is, from what we've read, it is unclear what Facebook would do in these circumstances. And so like from on behalf of the partnership, our first ask for the companies is write your policies down, right? Have them written down in a way that people can predict because if the policies, if we can't look at the policies and predict what they're going to do, then there's not going to be any faith on any side that these decisions are being made based upon what they think is right or wrong. Everybody's going to believe it's being made for political reasons. There's been reporting out there that Facebook doesn't want to write down their policies because they worry that if they put it out there that they've got a policy that three strikes and they'll remove you or they'll they'll accept this and not that will give bad actors a chance to toe the line. As a reporter, I, I struggle with that because every single day I report on people who are towing the line with Facebook and yeah. putting something as a question or phrasing it in just the right way so that Facebook doesn't remove their pieces of their, their individual pieces of content. So yeah, I, I struggle with understanding why they don't want to put their policies in writing in a really clear way that's enforceable. And especially now, when we look at sort of unprecedented statements being made about USPS, about the whole mail-in voting system, want us to wonder if come the day after the election, Facebook will be scrambling for some sort of policy uh, for what they could do if someone declares themselves the victor prematurely. Right. right. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I, I don't think it's a good enough. I mean, there's a legitimate reasons to not put your policies down. I don't think that outweighs all the benefits, right? The benefit of, of making it clear how you're going to act is that you give yourself the veneer of legitimacy of demonstrating we are pre-committing ourselves to a course of action. We reserve the right to adjust that, but if we do so, we're going to do so in a transparent manner. I think that's fine. And, and the truth is, is you're right, like bad guys toe the line all the time. This is an entire business. There are people who make their entire lives of figuring out what are the limits of Facebook spam policies? What is the limits of their coordinated behavior policies? And then they go right up to that line. That's a, if you're good at that, then you hire yourself out to companies, if you're doing it for them, or to governments to push their propaganda, and you just stay right on the side of what is considered legitimate. And so, yes, I, I don't. I think that's actually kind of silly. Uh, the other problem specifically with Facebook is the policies on election stuff is actually smeared across like a dozen different posts by different people. It's not in one place. And that's one of the things we called for in the blog post is if you're going to have these policies, they should be in one place. That being said, most companies have no policies. And that's one of the things we found is that the vast majority of social media companies have not written any policy at all around election disinformation. So at least Facebook's started down that path, they have further to go. And I, I do think that maintaining this optionality is going to be much worse for the company in the long run. It's hard to imagine how a company in 2020 could not have a policy around the elections, given that we've seen companies used, the platforms used again and again to spread disinformation. Yeah. Do you think these companies are not putting policies in place because it's, it's complicated, it's expensive, they don't have the right lawyers, they don't have the right policy teams? Or do you think that they're sort of hoping and waiting that someone from government hands down a policy for them and that there is at some point government inf intervention with these companies to tell them what should and shouldn't be allowed in the lead up to an election. Yeah, I don't think they're thinking that because I, I, there's nobody, I mean, I, there's no cavalry over the hill on this, right? Like, I think it is clear to everybody in the policy teams. I think part of it is the model that has existed for all the social media companies since the MySpace days has been they don't write policies until they deal with the problem, right? That generally... You wait, some problem emerges, you study it, you have a bunch of smart people argue it out, and then the outcome of that is a written policy because they, they don't believe they can pre-commit to something that they don't really understand. And that's reasonable in some cases. I think in this specific case, one, it is absolutely predictable what is going to happen. I'm pretty sure somebody is going to declare themselves the winner without evidence. I think there's probably about a 70% chance of that happening. I think it's highly likely that there will be messages that aren't coordinated on the back end, but that come from the top, perhaps from the, the podium of the White House, that then become the talking points. And then lots and lots of, you know, maybe they're, they're generic from the top. Oh, it's, you know, the election's being stolen in Florida. And then you don't need a conspiracy for other people to know, well, the next thing that I do is I create a fake document that, that 
supports that. I create a fake video that supports that, right? And that's completely predictable. So I, I, I think in this situation, um, for some of these smaller companies, you know, we're having good, honest conversations with them. So I'm not, I'm not going to out any individual company. But what you hear over and over from them is like, that feels like more of a Twitter and Facebook problem. Our platform has never had that problem. And this is like my message. This is a class I teach at Stanford on trust and safety that I'm, you're going to visit one day and speak to my, my, my class. My whole message there is like, it's not, no problem is only like a YouTube Twitter and Facebook problem, like every platform will eventually run into all of these. And I think that is true for election disinformation. Um, but because the, the smaller guys haven't run into it yet, they can kind of, they feel that they can kind of keep their heads down, pay attention, act, you know, Im- immediately try to act very quickly and come up with a policy very quickly. And if they don't, by doing, by staying out of it, they stay out of the press, they stay out of the media. Like for some of these companies, they don't want to say we have an election policy because all of a sudden they put themselves in the crosshair of somebody saying, oh, wow, you guys could be used for election. But I think that's silly, right? And and I have said that to them, that they are positioned in a place that Facebook was in 2016, um, and that not acting proactively is not going to save them. I mean, what we're seeing over and over again is kind of the diversification of over the internet of a lot of these groups. And um, QAnon, I think, is a great example of a group that we know took root on Facebook, has millions of adherents on Facebook. But at this point, you've got dozens of QAnon groups on places like Discord, on, on different corners of the internet that right. even a few years ago, you wouldn't have found them. Yeah. And the reason I was thinking about that just today is that Facebook announced a massive takedown of QAnon groups, of, of pages. And the question in my mind after writing about it just today was, will it work? Will mm-hmm. taking down thousands of, of, of groups, or limiting thousands of groups, taking down hundreds of them, will that be enough to actually curtail the spread of QAnon? And yeah. sorry, just to, to back up for anyone who doesn't know, QAnon is a conspiracy theory. Uh, it's it's largely on the right. It believes that a global cabal is doing all sorts of horrible, evil things um, in, right. in government. Drinking mainly. baby, uh, adrenochrome. Yes, there are yeah. a lot of false uh, statements made by this group. I should yes. stress the false. And uh, they have a lot of adherence. Right. And they have seen an absolute astronomic growth in people that believe their conspiracies since the start of the pandemic. Yeah. And I I would ask, like, given how, how much they've grown, do you think there's anything that, that Facebook could do at this point to curtail the growth? Or would it have to be something that was done across, you know, dozens of tech companies, dozens right. of these platforms working together? Or can you not stop it at all, right? And right. I think QAnon is fascinating because it, it is a domestic group that is very different in the structure than what we saw in 2016. The, I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, but we're already talking about QAnon, so we're both about to get email uh, about this uh, and some nice Twitter DMs. Um, but, I mean, QAnon 1 is, like, closer to religion than anything else now, right? Like, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a belief system that no matter what facts come out, they're able to modify their theory, you know, fit those facts into their theory, right? Mm-hmm. One of the interesting aspects of what Facebook did today was they classified QAnon as they created a new category of dangerous group in the same kind of column as ISIS and, you know, um, Al Qaeda and other terrorist groups. They, they intentionally said, these are not terrorists. They have, it's, it's a lower level and they're taking less aggressive action, but it's in the same kind of category of policies around dangerous organizations, which is really interesting. In one way that is an accurate thing about QAnon is that, it's not just like an emergent property of Facebook or Twitter. QAnon has a core group of people that are organized around a small number of platforms who don't care or actually intentionally try to host this kind of content. I'm not going to give them any kind of credit, but anybody who researches this knows what what platforms I'm talking about. And so there's a, a kind of a core platform where all this organization happens. And that's where like the true, true believers are. And then those true believers are effectively given their messaging that they carry to the normies, as they sometimes even call people, on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, on YouTube and the like. And so you have this hub and spoke model of here's a court, uh, a bunch of coordination, and then they go out and they are they go to proselytize this religion out to all these other places. That's a lot like ISIS, right? ISIS was organized on mostly Telegram channels and some other kind of secret apps and stuff. One of them, it turns out, was written by the NSA, so not a great call by them. Um, but they organized like this, and then they sent people out to go find people who they could pull in who weren't true believers and they had a much softer version of their message, right? Like they intentionally softened the message and made it easier for, you know, mostly young Muslim men in Europe often that they're trying to target to bring into the fold. Now, the difference with ISIS is being a part of ISIS meant if you were part of those telegram channels and you lived in the West, you'd get arrested. If you were doing that in Syria, you might get drone striked, right? Mm -hmm. Like governments around the world made it very hard to be part of that organized group. 
it is not illegal to be part of QAnon. It is not illegal to be part of that board. Uh, you're certainly not getting drone striked for it, right? And so you have this core that I think will only be strengthened by the the activity on the, the periphery where they're shutting them down their ability to spread their message. And now, you hear, let's talk about the language, right? The language used by people who believe in QAnon is we are digital soldiers. We are fighting a war. I mean, the language is incredibly militaristic. Yeah. And the people who believe in QAnon really much feel themselves to be on the front lines of this war. Having an account taken down, having a group taken down from many of them feels like a badge of honor. Yeah. Right. And so it, it is going to limit their ability to proselytize to a new group, for sure. I think it's only going to strengthen that core. And and this is like, the other thing here is, this is all dynamic, right? This is adversarial action. This is true for all trust and safety work, all security work. You can't actually predict what's going to happen. You take a step and you can try to predict what the other side's going to do, but they're going to do something. They get a choice in the action as well, right? And the QAnon people are going to have decisions that they can make that, you know, could I'm not going to give them any advice, but there are certainly ways that they can get around the Facebook block and they can organize to spread their message in a way. So I don't think, you know, what, what finally ended ISIS online was a combination of the platforms suppressing their ability to grow with the core being attacked by governments, either through legal action or actual kinetic action, right? Since that core thing is not happening on QAnon, in fact, a couple of QAnon people might end up in Congress, I don't think that model works anymore, right? Um, there's also, I mean, a big difference between QAnon and ISIS is people would say they're part of ISIS, right? So part of, you know, people would say, I'm part of the Islamic State. They would identify themselves as such. There are people that, like, you know, put Q dog whistles in their Twitter profile and stuff, but the vast majority of people pushing the, mes- pushing the messaging are just seem like normal people, right? Which is one of the reasons it becomes much more effective, I think. And well, so you, it, it you is have interesting. seen acts of violence, increasing acts of violence done, carried out by QAnon believers. Yes on targets that they believe are part of this, you know, government conspiracy that they um, that they first sort of hear of on these Facebook groups or on whatever channels they're hearing about them on. Yeah. So I do question whether in the long term there will be some step by government to say, right, this group is now carrying out enough acts of violence, there's enough violence linked directly back to the group that we need to treat them as a different kind of org But structure. not organized. I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it has, but I've never heard of, say, a bunch of QAnon people getting together and saying we're going to meet here at this point, bring your guns, right? Like the, the closest would be the, the Comet Pizza stuff right. where basically crazy theories pushed one person. There's a lot of who will rid me of this meddlesome priest kind of language, right? And certainly it should be predictable that if you're saying that people are literally eating babies and they're part of a huge child trafficking ring, that they don't deserve to live, right? That's a reasonable next step. But I think for the most part, the people who are high up in this very loose hierarchy are pretty careful about the language they use. And so I, I, you know, I, I don't, I, I think it's unlikely that we'll see the kind of coordinated action that say we saw around the Islamic state. So QAnon's here to stay. We're not getting, we're no, not- no, I think they will be strengthened. I think they'll become less visible, right? Because it's less likely it's going to be harder to track. Although some of the forums in which they're most popular are very, very public. They're just anonymous or pseudo anonymous. No, I think they're definitely here to stay. The question will be like, how much do they focus on, radicalizing the couple million people who are already in that circle and how, you know do they give up the the trying to expand out and to find new people or do they find different ways of doing that so part of the reason i think i find QAnon so interesting is that there's such a quintessential example of a group that was sort of the, the growth of the group was really made possible by social media the fact that they could find people who believed in a prior conspiracy theory and draw them in into this kind of like pantheon of conspiracies that right. QAnon covers was enabled because social, that's part of what social media does. They find one thing you're interested in and they suggest five other sort of relevant topics for you. And so I wonder if this is just the beginning of, of many more movements like this that will take advantage of the fact that that if you already believe in a conspiracy, here are a couple more. And if in five years time, 10 years time, we won't be talking about, you know, a number of conspiracy theories that have taken hold all over the world because of this. Right. I mean, to be clear, cults have existed for a long time. We've had conspiratorial people with newsletters and stuff. But yes, it used to be a lot harder to send your crazy person newsletter. The marginal cost of sending each one was much higher and the difficulty was much greater. So, yeah, I mean, I I think people overstate the impact of algorithms on QAnon. I feel like that's always the easy pivot for folks. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's the algorithm, it's the algorithm. Why isn't it then? Because one, I, I mean, there... There's not in this situation. There's not as much evidence of kind of the uh, of recommendation engines and such radicalizing people. Um, I haven't seen as many like good walkthroughs of of folks being pulled. It, it seems like a lot of the QAnon stories are about people get contact, you know, see something that's specifically posted by a friend or family member, mm-hmm. right? So, and on a Twitter or Facebook, that is the number one determinant of what you see is who your friends are or who you're following. 
right? Um, on a YouTube or TikTok, it is much more algorithmic. But, you know, it, it just, it's, it's a little bit pat to just say, like, oh, it's the algorithm. Because that's, there's a lot of things that are in the algorithm, right? There's a lot of things that are recommended that don't make it like this. I think in this case, a lot of it is because propaganda from people that you trust is much, much more powerful, right? Well, and, I, I don't know, to me, at least, that does go back to the algorithm. Because a few years ago, Mark Zuckerberg made the decision that the algorithm should favor content from friends. He right, thought that yes. that was more meaningful. And I think and a direct the- reaction to a lot of the fake news criticism, right. which is that you know, all that stuff was coming from people who were offsite, who were built doing like very low quality or no quality journalism. Right. And, and I'm biased here, obviously, because I'm a member of the press. But in my mind, the right response to that is let's advocate for, you know, for, for, for well-established news sources. Let's advocate for organizations that we know are trusted, that um, vet and fact check their articles that are right. not these unknown sort of websites that published a lot of the false and misleading news in the lead up to the 2016 elections. Let's make sure Facebook prominently features authoritative sense, uh, authoritative um, sources of news. Instead, what we're seeing is like the opinion of your crazy uncle Joe is going to be at the top of your um, at the top of your newsfeed over an article that says, "Hey, Pizzagate's not real," or that thing that you saw about anti you know, against the coronavirus. That's that's not real either. Right. And I question whether Facebook hasn't overcorrected in a way that favors, you know, friends' opinions, which. I can see how, like, in a very simplistic view of the world, it makes sense to feature a friend. Right. But if your friend's not reliable, and if most people's friends aren't that reliable, why isn't there some kind of balance in place? No, I mean, there is a balance. And, and certainly turning the algorithm towards content that individual people posted. But when they did that, it's because the stuff people were posting was less about political. Like, at the time, if people wanted to say, I, I think there's a un, an irreducible fact that people want to signal what tribe they're part of, right? Like there's something really fundamental about using social media to say, I am part of this group, right? And people do the same thing by posting Atlantic articles and NPR articles in New York Times. Like the circles in which we move, it is exactly the same thing, right? Um, You know, so I think we have to, one, be careful about judging people who are different than kind of college-educated people who can see the ocean from their backyards, right? Um, So, and that is kind of an irreducible fact about people. And, and so it used to be like in the 2016, if you wanted to signal, I don't like Hillary Clinton, what you do is you'd post one of these crazy, totally fake news sites of Hillary has cancer or, you know, Hillary did this, Hillary did that. Um, and so the reaction was to that, okay, well, let's turn up what people are writing about their friends and their family and the photos and stuff. And, and you're right, that does create an opportunity for people then to create new content that is related to themes instead of linking out. They're pulling in and they're creating their own content to link to it. So is that over... Whether it's overcorrection or not, it's hard. And, and the other thing we got to remember is a core part of the entire disinformation ecosystem are legitimate media organizations, specifically Fox News um, and a bunch of kind of related blogs and smaller media sites that are very difficult to distinguish between. It is hard to come up with a rule that allows Vox Media to exist that doesn't allow Breitbart to exist, right? It's very hard to allow the New York Times to exist, but not foxnews.com. And I think that is one of the challenges the companies are meeting is that you – Author- what you believe is authoritative is something that 40 or 50% of Americans disagree about which media organizations are authoritative. And so the company can have a, you know, it can have its own First Amendment decision of what editorially is allowed. And like on the news tab where they're actually distributing money, I think they do have that responsibility. But when, uh, when users are saying, I want to share something from this news site, I think you have to have a pretty high bar to say, we don't believe that news site's authoritative, especially when you're talking about like, a major public corporation that has a news channel, you know, the Wall Street Journal editorial page. And unfortunately, those guys are part of the Q ecosystem. Now, Fox doesn't just come out and say Q is right, but they have, there's a ton of dog whistles, especially in their primetime programming that are like Q related dog whistles. That's a real problem. And I think that when you have like the president not denying stuff and and blowing these dog whistles and you have the, those establishments that then, signals to the next layer down that they're on the right track and gives them support and then builds kind of a base of people who are more likely to listen to folks that we'd otherwise just call crazy. Well, to me, it it kind of comes down to whether or not Facebook or really any social media company wants to be a purveyor of truth. Do they want to be the ones that decide what is true? And in doing so, do they then basically become a media company? And I know that's something Facebook has repeatedly avoided saying. They, They never, you know, in interviews, Mark, Zuckerberg repeatedly pushes back on this idea that they are a media company. But I have to ask, given where we now are, will they not have to adopt some of what media companies have to do and not to censor en masse 
a news organization, but to say, yes, we will make calls on what's true and what's not. And if right. they want to share an article, they can share an article. But if that article states that um, vaccines cause autism, or if that article states that the coronavirus vaccine is not effective and you should drink bleach or take UV light therapy rather than take a possible coronavirus, that's something we're going to tell you is categorically false in a very, not, not in a, let's link you to something else, but we're just going to put a really big label on it and let you know you're sharing something that's in, inaccurate. Right. Um, would that, would that make the world a better place? Would that make our society better to have people pointed to the truth? Sure, if it actually happened. I mean, one, I, there's a basic difference here between media companies and social media companies, which is one is by default, you have no right to speak and one you do, right? I have no right to get my editorial published in the New York Times. In fact, I have failed it multiple times. Even when asked by the New York Times editorial page, write an editorial for us, they're like, ah, no, we actually didn't mean it, right? And that's fine. I don't think that's I have- with me, I'm not- No, 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 that's nothing to do with you. I think I have no right to be in the New York Times. I believe that I have a basic right to speak on Twitter unless I violate the rules. That is a big difference, right? The Times makes a decision of we are going to pick out of this huge universe of content very specific things because our entire business is based first upon a non-existent scarcity anymore, right? So the newspaper business comes out of the idea that you can have a scarcity of content and it actually costs money to move information around. That's all gone now. Um, but now out of the scarcity of like, what can we edit and make sure is true and fact check and the like, right? Mm -hmm. And that's great. I'm super glad that that exists. Platforms that allow people to, to have their own political speech by default allow people to speak unless they are violating a specific rule. That is a very different thing, right? And to, to have then a, a rule at some level, you have to, you have, to have like a, a, a describable standard that you don't mind being applied to everybody fairly across the political spectrum on all kinds of beliefs. And I think a, a lot of the people who are talking about we need more fact-checking are really just begging the solution. Like, they want a very specific group of people to be very specifically fact-checked. They're not so interested in stuff that they say. So, for, for example, New York Times keeps on publishing op-eds especially, but also a couple of news stories that never accurately reflect Section 230. Facebook has never, ever, that's the, you know, one of the most important laws about online media regulation, Facebook has never censored any of those for being fake news, right? If Facebook did, the people at the Times would completely flip out, as they should, right? Because you should have a very, very high bar before censoring that kind of speech. But I think the difference between the media and people who are social media companies is at social media companies, the general belief is that all people should have that level of right, not just people that work for established media institutions. I don't think that anyone's advocating, and this is this is based on my, I don't think anyone's advocating for, you know, mass censorship. But if the New York Times were to publish something false about Section 230 in an op-ed or otherwise, and Facebook put a label on it that said, this is an accurate, here's, here's, here's a, you know, neutral, accurate right. source of information about 230, that's different to me than censoring. Right. No, and I agree. And I think labeling is the right solution to almost all of these things, because there, there is a difference between a incredibly powerful $600 billion corporation taking people's speech down, especially if they have a pretty dominant position if, in, in the marketplace. There's a difference between that and the company expressing its own First Amendment right to say this information we believe is false, right? So right. I, I agree that the labeling side, but I think we just have to be when people call for that, they have to call for a very specific rule. And I'm getting a little tired of the company should do more. You read a lot of the company should do more. It's like, okay, propose a standard and then be ready for that standard to be applied to people who you agree with, which almost nobody who says that is actually, they actually believe that there are people on their side that would be censored, but there would be, right? right. That's the truth. Well, what's interesting is that so much of this is just rooted really primarily in like a First Amendment debate, right? This is an American company run almost primarily, almost entirely by Americans. Right. And the idea of free speech, the idea that people should should have the right to say what they want is so fundamentally sort of core to the DNA of Facebook. And I'm going to pivot a little bit right now, but you know, a co another company that's been in the news a lot right now is TikTok, a company right. founded um, largely in China. And one interesting that's come up in the debate between TikTok, you know, TikTok and how it's taken hold in the United States is what are their values as a company? Right. What do they think about free speech? What do they think about privacy? What do they think about people's personal data? And as we've seen the White House call for a number, I'm still unclear exactly about what the White House wants to see happen with TikTok. I think a lot of people are. Um, I think they just want it to go away. <laughs> and they're trying to figure out some way to make that happen. Right. Yeah. Um, 
to you, like, what are the actually important issues that we should be thinking about when we think about a company like TikTok? Yeah. So, I mean, the TikTok situation is incredibly complex. And I, I, I did a tweet with like a very complicated Venn diagram to try to demonstrate this. Like, I, I think there is a, a very interesting risk from Chinese companies. The truth is, like, since 2013, since the Snowden disclosures, there's been a lot of work by tech companies to close all of the vulnerabilities that were included in those documents and to effectively make the U.S. government go through what we call the front door, right, to come with legal requests to the companies to get data out. Now, there's a bunch of good arguments that those front doors are too big or too open or don't have proper oversight. But for the most part, from, from what I have seen, all the major tech companies have closed those doors, right? To keep the U.S. government from just sucking data out of the companies requires a security team that treats the U.S. government as an adversary, that plans for what our U.S. intelligence agency is going to do to get data out of us. And that's what we do. Like when I, I was the first CISO at Yahoo after the Snowden disclosures, and that is what I had to do was sit down with my team and go through all the documents of which there was a Yahoo logo on a lot of slide decks uh, that Ed Snowden dumped out um, and think about how are we going to close these holes. And at Facebook, we did the same thing where we think about, okay, we need to keep even the U.S. government from getting this data unless they come to get it from us legally. That is what you need from a big platform if you want data be controlled under the rule of law. And so the question about like a TikTok or a Tencent who owns WeChat or any other Chinese-owned companies is not just are they intentionally giving data to the Chinese government, but is are they intentionally trying to protect their data from their government? And I have never seen any evidence that there's any tech company in China that's doing that, right? There's some evidence totally the opposite way, especially around Tencent, around lots of, of collaboration with the Ministry of State Security and other uh, security bureaus in the in, in China, but you know, and there's no good evidence of that in TikTok. But I've also not seen TikTok say like, "Oh yes, we are specifically planning for the possibility that MSS is going to infiltrate our employees, that MSS is going to try to blackmail our employees with their access to them or to their family members." Um, we have built data system. We have built systems that will detect that. That's what we need to see out of TikTok. And so, so there is a legitimate risk from Chinese companies. That being said, of the the most dangerous Chinese companies to the U.S. from a data protection perspective, I don't think TikTok's in the top 10, mostly because the content they have is not that interesting. When we talk about all these problems, one of the great things TikTok has done is they've stayed mostly apolitical, right? Which is like, I think one of the lessons you can take if you're trying to build a social media company, you look at Facebook and Twitter, is like, if you can be super limited, like a Pinterest in what you do, and you can just get rid of politics, it gets rid of a huge class of problems that are a, a huge mess, right? Like, it's too late for Facebook to just say, you can't talk about politics. Right. Um, but maybe Instagram could, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, but, uh, you know, so that's one of the benefits of TikTok, but also, you know, their data, almost all of their content is public. So it's not that sensitive. Um, and it's pretty clear that the president doesn't like TikTok probably because of things that, you know, people organizing and having First Amendment protected activity on TikTok that he disagrees with. And so he wants TikTok punished. And then there's all this post hoc rationalizations by people who maybe are doing it for political, people who, perhaps have legitimate concerns about China and see this as an opportunity to backdoor in some kind of model, I think it's a huge mistake. And I think it's a huge mistake because um, we are going to need a, a legitimate data protection regime in the United States that covers not just Chinese-owned companies, but American companies that operate in China, which almost every Fortune 500 company has some kind of Chinese operation. Mm -hmm. We need a data protection regime that covers all of those companies, that is fairly applied, that is, has teeth and has people enforcing it that know what they're doing to look inside these companies to see how data controls, where's data being held, who has access, what, what kind of logging is there, what kind of auditing. Uh, and doing that is a very complicated thing. It will require probably legislation. And it's something that we should do with our allies. And instead of doing that, we're just like, ah, in 45 days, TikTok should sell, which is the absolute worst way to try to do this. And it's also going to in the long run, be really bad for Silicon Valley because it is empowering people, especially in Europe and India, who have tried to play, basically play the same game of forcing American companies to have domestic data centers, domestic employees and such. Um, and so, you know, for 10 years, Silicon Valley and DC have worked together to push back on the idea that uh, that internet companies have to be headquartered, have to have 150 offices around the world. And then that's all been reversed in like two months. Right. So I, I think it's a, I think it's it's not this is not good for US national security in the long run because we need a really good protection regime that we agree with Europe. You know, us in Europe on data protection stuff, it's the narcissism of small differences, right? Like it's all the silly stuff about cookies and whatever when we really should be thinking about wholesale oppression in China and wholesale data access in China. And so 
we need an administration who will work with our European allies, with the rest of the five eyes, you know, the Anglophone countries, New Zealand, Australia, Canada, and the like, um, and come up with a standard that we're willing to all stand behind that we, we actually submit our own companies to. Um, but this is making that impossible uh, to do so in such a rushed manner. And so I, I, I think it's a humongous mess. I can talk about TikTok for a lot longer. Yeah, me too. Um, Sorry. But we have 15 <laughs> minutes left and dozens of questions that have come in. So Great. I'm going to go ahead and pick a few of these. Um, one question we got here is, in hindsight, if there was one policy change you could have made at Facebook during the election, what would it have been? It would have been to adopt what we eventually called our coordinated inauthentic behavior policy. Like the core policy failure at Facebook, and I think at pretty much all the tech companies, was that decisions about content were made on individual pieces of content, right? So you look at this one post, is this one story about Hillary Clinton violating of our policies? And the answer was generally no when it comes to like the Russian content. But what the policies nor the technology took into account is this thing that goes up to the line actually part of a massive campaign of fake accounts. And there was no kind of policy structure to deal with that. Um, that, that really should have existed before 2016. Um, another question that came in here is, how would you address concerns about the objectivity of the Atlantic Council and Graphica? These groups receive funding from military intel agencies and are going to be policing election disinformation. Right. Well, so we have worked with them on research. We have looked at their output, and it's great. I mean, the, one of the good things about disinformation research is you have, you have to show your work, or you really should show your work, right? This is actually a criticism I had of the director of national intelligence just put out a statement about countries messing with the U.S. elections, and they didn't cite any actual examples. Um, but when you talk about disinformation, we're not talking about secret methods or spies inside the Kremlin that you're getting this info from. If there's Russian disinfo and it's on Facebook, it's on Facebook, then show it to us. And if you look at those groups, they show their work, right? They come up with, here's our actual data. Here are CSV files of, of what we took our input. Here are actual examples of disinformation, and here's our attribution standards. Um, so... While you know, our group is not taking any government funding, working with groups that have a good research standard and have taken government funding doesn't really bother me. I would add that these seem to be the groups that Facebook's already working with. I mean, the, the analysis we've seen that's come out on a lot of the, the takedowns has come from these organizations already. Right. And, and Twitter. Uh, the, I mean, Twitter and Facebook are the only companies that are working with outside researchers right now. We're all really trying to get YouTube to work with us. That's been a long, hard slog. Um, but yes, all, all these groups have worked with both Twitter and Facebook. Um, another question, what is your baseline or example of what good digital democracy could look like? Ooh. Yeah, it's hard. Um, so, I, I mean, I'm not going to talk about, I'm not actually a political scientist. I just play one uh, on TV when I teach an a international policy class. Um, what I say is, I mean, I think what I'll, I'll reinterpret the question like a politician. Uh, I think one of the things we have to think about is is what is a reasonable kind of uh, governance of online systems that we like. And that is like the big question is who gets to make the rules about online speech on platforms that span dozens and dozens of countries. Um, and what I like to see is I'd like to see much more public governance. Um, I'd like to see multi-stakeholder models where there are public arguments about these things and these decisions aren't made in secret conference rooms. They're made with public discussions and arguments. Uh, and uh, that there's a human rights standard to apply to it. I think one of the dangerous things we're moving towards is we're moving towards a world where um, governments are kind of taking over. And that sounds great when you're like an American or you're French or German, but the truth is the majority of governments in this, in this world are either authoritarian or they're democracies that don't have a lot of protections for individual rights. Um, and a lot of the laws that are being passed are less about what's best for society overall and more what's best for people who are in charge. We see a lot of that in India right now, for example. Um, obviously, you see it in places like Thailand, Vietnam, Russia, of course. Um, and so I think uh, I would like to see multi-stakeholder public governance, multi-stakeholder groups who are able to argue this out, but then have a baseline of human rights that everybody agrees to up front that we will not go below this line. Kind of curious. I don't think there's been much of that. I'm trying. I think what happened after the Christchurch uh, attack was yeah. one example I can think of, where sort of Facebook and, and other social media companies came together with you know politicians to discuss you know what sort of policies they can adopt. Has there been much more of that other than? The I mean, one? the closest has been the Facebook yeah, the review board slash people call it the Facebook Supreme Court, which yeah. apparently has taken as much time as it took to like make the the real Supreme Court. Right. Um, I mean, there's like a huge, I think, operational failure at Facebook that this thing is not operating for the 2020 election. Like, that's just crazy. If you're going to do this, do it fast enough for the 
the disinformation Olympics uh, to be covered, right? Uh, but some kind of model where the company has to go to an outside group and argue this is what we want, and then that group talks to other people in public, and you see how the sausage is made, I think is important, right? Um, and, you know, whether that works out or not, or that can be the basis of something that actually is across multiple companies, we'll see, but that's my hope, is that that can start as something that just Facebook's running, but that can become a forum in which if you have, if you want to argue around YouTube or Twitter's policies, that at least there's a public mechanism for that decision to be made. Uh, next question is, what steps can college students take to preserve democracy in the digital age and mitigate the threat of mis- and disinformation? That's how a great we, question. I'm sorry. Uh, it goes on as the second part. How do we get involved in work projects like the Internet Observatory and people like you? Okay. Um, well, so uh, we're, if you're a Stanford student, you should apply to work with us. I can only really hire Stanford students right now for a variety of reasons. Um, and so we're not taking outside volunteers uh, for, for the election project. Uh, go and look to see whether you have equivalent uh, at your own university. And if you don't, you should ask why, right? Go find a professor who you think might be, you know, it's interesting, like disinformation, uh, trust and safety research, the research of like the bad things that happen online doesn't fit neatly into any one discipline, right? And so our group, we have a law professor involved. We have CS professors. We have somebody at the Human AI Institute. Um, we have a, a Harvard PhD in political science. You know, it's it's kind of a hodgepodge. Go see if there's a, a place in your university that, that that could come together and try to find some PIs, some principal investigators, some professors that you think might be interested in doing this kind of work. Show them our papers. See if, you know, tell them, hey, there's actually a lot of funding in this area. That's what professors love to hear these days. Um, and, and try to get if you can start that. I think for this election, the most important thing young people can do is they can volunteer to work in election in polling places. Right. Polling places are traditionally uh, really nice old people uh, who are extremely at risk with for COVID. Um, and so if you're willing to take the risk and you're a young person and you want to put your young immune system on the line, going and volunteering for your local county uh, election system is, is a super critical thing. And I think we're going to have one study I saw, we might have a deficit of 200,000 election workers. And so if college students who are now all home, you know, they're on Zoom all day, they're not in their college towns, can go volunteer, that could do a huge, you know, a huge part of, of filling that gap. Um, and vote. And vote, of course, vote. yes. Um, do you think con content moderation and the privacy safety trade-off should differ based on whether the product is a private messaging service versus social media versus productivity services like Dropbox? Ooh, yeah. Well, one, I have to thank this person for uh, for paying attention that like something we haven't really talked right. about is there's a significant privacy safety trade-off in all this, right? Like uh, this is one of the things I want to talk about with QAnon is I would not be shocked if QAnon becomes mostly a phenomenon on peer-to-peer -peer messaging apps, especially encrypted ones like WhatsApp and Signal. Uh, just like ISIS thought they were protected on, on Telegram. Um, now, there's some differences. Again, if you are if you have the NSA trying to infiltrate you, that's different than if you're QAnon, right? Um, so, but yes, there's this massive trade-off of these private, messaging these private messaging services. People have a much higher expectation of privacy. The companies have been, um, you know, have a lot of them have built end-to-end -end encryption into it. Google has announced they're doing end-to-end encryption. I'm consulting with Zoom. Zoom is shipping end-to-end -end encryption. Uh, and so that has lots of privacy benefits, uh, but it does make it hard to police for any kind of bad activity, including disinformation, but also some stuff that's actually much worse. Um, so what do I think about that? Uh, I mean, I, I have this uh, PowerPoint slide with this inverted triangle where I talk about, you know, from my perspective, the parts of a product that provide the most amplification are where you have the least expectation of privacy and where the companies have the most responsibility and uh, to, to moderate. And at the top of that inverted pyramid is advertising, right? Because advertising allows you to trade money for, for speech. But then there's also recommendation engines. There's the kind of speech that you can say publicly and millions of people can see it. So like public Facebook pages, public Facebook posts. And then that triangle as it gets smaller, private Facebook groups, private messenger groups, and then one-on-one -on -one chat at the bottom, you have much more of expectation of privacy, and I think the company should be less engaged. And so I don't think it would be appropriate, even if it wasn't encrypted, for Facebook to go and see if people are talking about QAnon on WhatsApp, one-to-one -one or one-to-five, and then shut it down. I, just as I don't think it would have been appropriate to listen to everybody's phone call in the United States and you know, shut down the people who are talking about communism, right? Um, and so uh, I think we have to focus at the top. Now, the fortunate thing is there's so much work you can do at the top of that pyramid that we can start there and we can argue about the hard corner cases later. Right. 
Earlier, you mentioned social media companies needed policies for handling election disinformation. What election disinformation policies do traditional companies like the New York Times have that might provide guidance? Ooh, I get to answer one. Yeah. So um, we, I would say, well, specifically for the New York Times, we have changed a lot since 2016. We've thought, I, w- I was not at the New York Times in 2016, but I've been a journalist for, um, God, going on 15 years now. And in 2016, I don't think we had formalized ideas about how we should cover disinformation, specifically when the media was being used uh, as a source and to spread disinformation. So something interesting that happened in 2016 was planting hacked documents in with the media as media stories. And a number of news organizations couldn't resist the temptation of getting their hands on real-life emails from inside the Democratic Party. And it created an ecosystem in the lead up to the elections where there were just constant headlines about what Clinton had said to Podesta, what Podesta had said to someone else. And this played right into the hands of the Russians. Now, as a journalist, it's really tempting to publish a hacked email when you get it. But I think we have since, I would say this across media organizations, really evaluated what our responsibility is to to really clearly establishing the source of a document. If you get something that's been leaked to you, that's been hacked to you, you you have to upfront, really at the top, say, this has been leaked to you. And if possible, say why. So if you can imagine back in 2016, if every story about a leaked email was prefaced with, this was hacked. This was stolen from inside the server of a Democratic Party, and we don't know why, and the stuff appears to be done to damage the campaign of Clinton. I, I think that would have colored the coverage quite a bit. I think it would have covered people's interpretation. So just speaking personally, I cover a lot of disinformation stories for The New York Times. First and foremost in our minds is why are we covering a story? Where did we get this information? Who sent it to us? A second aspect that I think is different now between now and 2018 is that we're really, we are as careful about what we don't write about as what we do. So every day we sort of ask ourselves whether us covering it, especially as the New York Times, is going to amplify a piece of disinformation. Um, QAnon is a great example of this. There are constantly things shifting with QAnon, but sometimes reporting on them is just going to give oxygen to the room, to, to what they're saying. And sometimes the goal of a disinformation campaign is to get the New York Times to write about it. And so we really spend a lot of time debating sort of what's our threshold? How do we cover something in a way that feels responsible and really clearly states when something is false um, in a way, again, in a way that, that strikes that balance between not amplifying it, but informing people. I mean, do you think there's anything that we're that we're not doing that we should be doing, Alex? Well, so look, for first, the Times, I think, is as much crap as I give to Times reporters. I think the Times is the most thoughtful here. Like, they've got disinformation reporters like you, right? Like, the fact that the, the company has a beat on it, um, and I think you have some of the most thoughtful editors on it. I mean, I think one thing that would be neat is I would have loved to seen that written down, right? Like, I haven't seen a document from the editors of the New York Times of how we're going to cover leaked, because it, maybe it exists internally, but I think that would have... You know, like one of the reasons I would like Facebook to be more detailed in their policies is that the companies that don't have 50 lawyers to argue about it can just adopt them. And it'd be interesting to see like there's a long tail of media organizations and I'd love them to say, oh yeah, we're going to sign up for maybe the Times, the Post, and the AP all have a, a you know the 10 principles of leaked documents. Mm-hmm. And like, we're going to follow those. Because the truth is you guys think about stuff. There's a lot of folks in the media who don't. I think especially on TV, the TV folks are trying to fill all day and it's all about immediacy. And I've seen a bunch of situations where a small piece of disinformation gets massive lift from TV coverage. Right. Um, the best example of that would be like the slowdown video of Nancy Pelosi, right? right. Which only had like 30 or 40,000 views before everybody started pointing out, look at this horrible video of Nancy Pelosi. Look how horrible this is. Look at this thing that I hate. I really dislike this thing. Look right. at it. And then it got millions of views. Right. In fact, I was interviewed by NBC. And while mm-hmm. I was talking about the need to not amplify the disinformation, they were playing the video next to my head. I didn't realize that until I watched it later on DVR. So um, so anyway, I think it would be great like if you guys actually publish that and then other people could sign up to it. That's interesting. It's, a, it's, it's an interesting thought. I don't think we've discussed it, especially because so many of these decisions we make on the fly and there isn't like a number like, oh, once this gets a million views, we'll cover it once it gets right. a million shares. But I think the statement that I made about the tech companies is the same for the media, mm-hmm. which is pre, pre, you know, giving yourself a rule ahead of time gives you the ability to be courageous in the moment, right? right? As someone who is deeply ingrained in internet culture, what trends scare or alarm you the most? I, I don't like the context collapse, right? Like, I, I try not to use the term cancel culture, right? Because it, it has, like, a lot of political weight. But I don't like how ready, readily we will destroy somebody's entire life for one mistake or how quickly people online will 
take will believe the worst possible interpretation about anybody's actions. I think that's like a really bad thing that has, it's like a lot of it's a Twitter phenomenon that's expanded out to other platforms, but it also has now entered normal life of taking a, a set of facts about a person and then finding the worst case interpretation of that. And then that becoming the conventional wisdom almost instantly. Mm. I think that's like a really destructive thing for our society. So my thing kind of builds that, I think, a little bit. Um, I would say that since the start of the pandemic, people are just online constantly. I know I am. And I think one trend that I've noticed is just with this constant need to be online, our cycles, our news cycles are moving so quickly that that it feels like we're just giving these like superficial glances to everything. And especially when, when you live on Twitter, when you live on Facebook, you sort of see how quickly these things pass us by without any sort of really thoughtful discussion on what's happening. So I, I think that concerns me. And I think sort of hand in hand with this is that the audience of people that are just very much online all day is getting younger and younger. Um, I speak to a lot of friends who have kids that are, that are preteens and teens, and they used to really limit screen time. And now that's, that's really hard for parents yeah. to do, right? Like, like we're going, as a parent, you're going on six months of having your kids at home. Like, even if you had good limits in place in the beginning, a lot of those have, have fallen by the wayside. And so we've blown through our budget through like 2027 for our three kids. Yeah, yeah there you go. So <laughs> I, I think that's concerning. You have a lot of really young people that are online constantly right now. And I question what they're being exposed to. and you know, how that sort of, of, of shifting them to be online in the middle of a pandemic when we're seeing a lot of sort of really horrifying things said yeah. and what are going to be the long-term effects of that. Yeah. The way teenagers treat each other online is actually pretty horrible, right? right. Now, that's actually something I like about TikTok is there's a lot of positive stuff on it. You know, I think they, they for, I don't know if it's the algorithm or just the culture they've built or, or how they've thought about this, but there actually is a lot of positive, funny, you know, uplifting stuff on TikTok. And I think it would be great for other companies to try to investigate because like whether it's true or not, right? Like my Facebook is full of negativity, right? Like most of it's true. It's not fake news. Right. It's just the world's a horrible place. And like, I kind of wish I could just flip a button of like, can I only see happy stuff for a while? Because I, I, I can get informed, you know, and I, I think that's part of it is, you know, we get so into our phones and like watching TV and like, you're just so inundated with all the, all the data that it's easy just to get negative about everything. So what's the nicest thing you've seen on TikTok lately? Oh, that's a good question. I, um, I, I mean, I will, I, I, I've, I recently got into, I was reporting on TikTok and I recently got into TikTok and I have to say there are these corners of TikTok in which young people just share these incredibly uplifting moments where they like one up each other, where yeah. they, where they like find, you know, a video of somebody that's feeling sad and they just duet it or, you know, put a side-by-side -side video of themselves saying, you got this, you're going to be okay. Everything's going to get better. And it's such a sort of like rare moment of pure positivity of watching, especially sort of younger people rather than break each other down, try yeah. and really uplift one another. And, and I'm an old person and I just watch that and I think, wow, I, I wish that existed when I was a teen. One of those trends I saw was people filming kids getting their acceptance letters to college. Yeah, that was sweet. Right. And then everybody screaming, the entire family screaming and yelling and crying. Like yes. that was pretty incredible. Alex, do you think there are any policy questions that lawmakers should be considering? Is there anything that should have been brought up during the congressional hearings with tech leaders that were not mentioned? So it's interesting that the congressional hearings were supposed to be about antitrust uh, and they became kind of a litany of the things that politicians did not like about mostly content policies, but also some other facets. I mean, I think there's an interesting antitrust question that I have no expertise in. Where I would like them to focus is one on setting basic rules for the expectations of these companies of how much they should be policing for behavior that is outside of the disinformation that is, that is harmful, right? So in child safety, in harassment and bullying, there's all kinds of problems that we can all agree we don't want to see on these platforms. And there's no good guidelines of how far they should go to find this content. Uh, and in fact, in some cases, they're, they're somewhat encouraged not to look because all these obligations attach once they find, say, uh, evidence of child exploitation. So I, I, one, I would like to see those kind of carrots put in place for companies that are acting in good faith to police their platforms. Second is I think we need a comprehensive look at cybersecurity at this country. We need to figure out who is in charge of defensive cybersecurity in the U.S. government and really empower them to work with their partners in the private sector. Uh, and I think what we really need for the private sector is we need laws that encourage them to come out and to document the bad things that have happened. We only hear probably of one-tenth of the breaches that happen every single day in this country because the vast majority of hacking is not about 
our PII or our social security numbers. It's about intellectual property. It's about corporate secrets. It's about sales figures and the like. And companies have no obligation to disclose that information. In fact, if they do disclose it, they immediately get a shareholder lawsuit and they spend years and years in litigation. If the airline industry was like this, where everybody kept every failure secret, planes would be falling out of the sky all the time. And we need to follow the airline industry in building a culture of public accountability that also creates shields around these companies for which something bad didn't really happen, but there was a close call. And for in situations where there is a real breach, that there's a, a reasonable way that they're punished and that they don't have to spend five or six years in class action lawsuits, that when they pay their fine, it actually goes to the victims and it doesn't go um, to class action lawyers. I think that's a, that's a really complicated knot, but we have to really change the way we think about cybersecurity in the country. Our thanks to Alex Damus, former chief security officer at Facebook and director of the Stanford Internet Observatory. We'd like to also thank our audience for watching and participating live. If you'd like to watch more programs or support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in making virtual programming, please visit commonwealthclub.com slash online. I'm Shira Frankel. Thank you and stay safe, everyone. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.